Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Glad you came out. Uh, at the end of service, it's, uh, you know, last year we called it Senior Sunday, and Sheb said, man, it's awful nice they're going to be uh, honoring the older folks here this morning. <laughs> and so we're going to honor our older folks just by saying we love you this morning, but we're talking, this, this Sunday is graduation Sunday, and we're going to honor our high school graduates uh, as well. So we've got, we've got a handful that we want to honor this morning. And I feel like I've got a word that the Lord has been dealing with my heart about, and we just need to pray that he gives me the ability to communicate it as well as I can and, and, and would bring honor to him. But I want to speak something. And uh, the title of my message this morning is called Wisdom in a Warped World. And I think it's important for us. So before we dive into this, let's, let's pray together, if you would. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your spirit and your presence that is here with us this morning. And God, we just thank you for, for church because this is a place where we can come with our brokenness, with our sin, with our struggles, and be real and be honest. But Lord, also be confronted with truth. Because ultimately, God, it's your truth that sets us free. It's your truth that brings us into a place where we can really experience your love. And so, God, I pray that uh, as we open your word this morning, the spirit of truth, Holy Spirit, you would come, you would anoint it, you would speak to our hearts, you would bind all distraction, Lord God, and you would bind every deceptive lie that is in our hearts and minds, and you would pull it down with the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, you know, as we're honoring our graduates this year, I, I don't know, I just always say I got a heart for kids that are about 18 years old because, I don't know, for me, 18 to 21 years old was like a time of, of real challenge and confusion and just trying to figure out what was true in the world. And, and all of these different competing ideas are coming at our minds. And here's the thing. I graduated high school in 2005, and, 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 and now... What was going on then was pretty wild, but what's going on now, it's a lot different. There's a lot more challenges. There's, there's crazier ideologies in our world, and there's more, more deceptions that people are having to deal with and try to filter through the Word of God in their own lives so that they can live according to the, God's Word. And so here's the thing. We have all of this going on. I can remember when I was 18, 20 years old. So, so for me, I, I was living a life that was honestly totally contrary to God. Now, if you'd asked me had I, had I believed in God, I'd have said, absolutely, yeah, I believe in God. If I'm probably saved and, and all of these different things. But I had a different philosophy. And I remember when I went to college, I, I was faced with all of these different worldviews coming at me from one direction and, and, the, and the other. And probably the worldview that I liked most was actually the postmodern worldview. And that is simply that you can live your own truth. And it's funny to me because we think in our modern society that this is some kind of a new philosophy, that, that living your own truth is a new philosophy. But actually, this is a philosophy that is old as time itself because it was Satan's philosophy in the Garden of Eden. When he came, he essentially told Adam and Eve, he said, did God try to put restrictions on you? He said, don't you know that if you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can be your own God, you can live your own truth, you can decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And that is the philosophy that is being pushed on people today. And i got to be honest with you, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I really liked that philosophy. I was like, man, I can live my own truth. So like, what's good for me, what feels good to me, just do it and, and, just, and just live that out. And that's what I live. The problem with that is, is that as I lived that and as I dove deeper into the realities of sin and was in bondage to all sorts of different things, what I did not have was peace. 
What I did not have was true happiness, was true joy. I didn't have any freedom. I had a a disturbed mind. I was depressed. I was angry. I was frustrated. So I'm dealing with all of this. And I remember, I just wanted to know the truth so bad. Anybody ever been in that position? You're just like, man, I just want to know the truth. Somebody tell me the truth. I go to one church, one guy say one thing. I go to another church, another guy say another thing. And I'm thinking, I just want to know the truth. I took a class in college at EKU called The Search for Meaning in the Modern World in the midst of my addiction and my sexual struggle and everything that's going on. I took a class because while I was searching for meaning, I'm like, surely this class will do it. Amen, right? Yeah, this is going to do it. And I went in there, and I remember the first day of the class, first time I'd ever heard anybody publicly say it, first day of the class, the professor, nice guy, gets up and says and declares, I don't believe there's a God. And I'm thinking, that's weird. Why you say that day one? And the point being is because if he's making the declaration that there is no God right out of the gate, well, then we, can, then we have a basis from his argument to which we can actually search for meaning. If there is no God, what meaning is there? How do we find meaning in the modern world? And so he unraveled this. We read books by Nietzsche and Descartes. Maybe you guys don't know those guys, but those are philosophers that whether you know it or not have shaped our worldview today. I read books by popular atheist Richard Dawkins. And then I had another professor who was in the New Age religion. And this guy introduced me to some, uh, some of these New Age gurus. And I can remember at the time, I don't know if any of y'all watch Oprah, but back in like 2005, 2008-ish, she may still be doing the same thing. But she was inviting all these New Age gurus onto her show to teach New Age religion. And I read a couple of these guys' books. And I thought, this is neat, transcendental meditation. This guy even talks about Jesus. And he talks about Jesus, except here's the thing. When he talked about Jesus, he taught, about, he taught that Jesus was basically an enlightened philosopher, but he mentioned nothing of the cross. He mentioned nothing of your personal sin and my personal sin and the fact that Jesus died on the cross in our place for our salvation so that we could be set free and forgiven of our sin. They leave that part out. As long as Jesus is an enlightened one, but there's nothing to do with sin, well, then Jesus is okay and we can mix him into the bundle. Amen. And that's what the religious kind of worldview and the philosophical worldview today is, especially when you move into the college area. And like I said, now it's getting even worse and there's more more of these theories. So I I say to myself, I get in this place where I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, I just want the truth. And I can remember after reading all this stuff, diving into all of these things, I start reading the Bible out of nowhere. I find it in the bottom of my uh, drawer. And let me tell you something. So this morning, one of the gifts that we're going to give our, our, our graduates is a Bible. Because there is nothing that is going to be more effective in grounding you in truth and actually leading you to a true encounter with Jesus and potentially set you free from the darkness that is trying to overwhelm you. When I picked up that Bible and opened it, it began to speak to me. Now, it challenged my worldviews. There were things in it that I read initially and even sermons that I heard preached that some of you may hear this morning. Initially, I rejected it. I said, I don't like that. That is not true, and it's too demanding. It's asking me to get rid of things that I am incapable of getting rid of, and I cannot do this. And I was angry. It was, it was like it stirred something in me in anger. But, but the problem was is I kept going back to it because somewhere deep down in it, there was a spirit that was pulling on me, the Holy Spirit saying, Son, this is truth. This is truth. And I remember reading the book of Proverbs. I was fascinated with the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes as I'm reading it. Meanwhile, I'm still, I'm still committing sexual sin. I'm still getting drunk. I'm still getting high. I'm still partying. I'm still doing my thing. I'm still at night with my buddies saying crazy stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
But in my private time, I'm beginning to read the Word of God and allowing it to confront who I am as a human being and as a person. I can remember reading Proverbs 4, 7 in the beginning. And, and, and it says this, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. And that lifted up off the page to me. And one of the things that he's saying, he's saying is, you know what, in your own, in your, your own human nature, if you are left to yourself, you know what you're going to do spiritually? You take a nap. You know what I'm talking about? He's saying that there has to be this reality that if you truly want wisdom, you have to understand that you have to exert yourself in actually obtaining wisdom. It doesn't just come to the, the, the lazy passerby, well, whatever will be, will be. We just kind of need to go with the flow and let things happen. If you don't pursue wisdom, you will not find it. It is like a hidden treasure buried deep in the ground. And the Spirit of God says, if you want to know the truth, you're going to have to go after it. You're going to have to get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is to turn yourself on internally and saying, I'm going after that. I'm going to pursue it. I remember reading Proverbs 9 and 10, and I'm going to tell you a crazy quick story right here that you won't believe, but it happened nonetheless. Uh, I read this scripture one night. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and legitimately, I had basically said the sinner's prayer probably six months prior to this and said, Lord, please get me out of this. But I was still deeply wrestling with my sin, with my worldview, with my ideologies, with all these different philosophies. I had all these books laying around my broom. And I'm reading all kinds of different stuff, different philosophies, mixing them all up, jumbling them up. And when you're 20 years old, you think you're brilliant and you're really, really dumb. That's one of the best advice I can give you this morning if you're 20 or 18. Or you think you're smart. And here's the thing. You're going to go to college or you're going to go somewhere and you read a couple of books and you hear one professor teach a lecture and you're able to regurgitate two lines of it and you think you're the smartest person in the world. And all you've done is heard one guy teach one lecture. Amen. Is this not true? It is true. So wisdom is different. And here's what he says in Proverbs 9, 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I read that. It pierced my heart. I began to cry. You say, well, that's just a plain old verse, Clay. The Holy Spirit was at work in my life. I said, Lord, I've been trying to seek you. I've asked you to get me out of this. My life seems to be getting only worse from what I can tell. I'm still not free. I said, Lord, I realize that I have no wisdom. Would you teach me to fear you? And as I said this in my bedroom, God is my witness. We can replay it when we all get to heaven. A lightning bolt struck outside of my bedroom window. <clears throat> Shook the house. It made me tremble. And whether or not that was a coincidence, I don't know. I like to think it was the Lord. Regardless, in that moment, there was an awareness internally in my heart that if I was going to find truth, I needed to set certain things aside and I needed to seek God himself. And the place that I was going to begin was with the scripture, with the authoritative word of God. And there was an invitation in my heart from the Holy Spirit that said, if you seek me, son, you will find me. If you seek me, you will find me, and I will show you, and I will give you wisdom. And this is the beginning of it to fear me. Now, so now our modern world is afraid of that fear of the Lord stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like They, they don't know how to understand it, and, 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 and I get it because here's, here's the thing. In the New Testament, it actually says that perfect love casts out fear. 
So there is this dread of like, it's like when you're a kid and you're going to the principal's office. Y'all ever done that? And you're just scared to death uh, that the principal, he's probably going to murder you in his office for like stealing a pop off a kid or something. Like, and, and you've got this dread, this sense of coming before God. Well, the good news is, is that the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done, has brought perfect love and that he died for your sins, that, that you can come into the presence of God and not have fear because you know that your love is accepted now because Jesus has died in your place that perfect love casts out all that fear but it does not take away the fact that there's still a healthy fear of the Lord matter of fact scripture says that Jesus is delight Isaiah 11 his delight was in the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord is reverence it's all it's worship of God see I remember when Oprah brought a couple of pastors on during that time she asked them the question basically is there only one way to God one pastor made the statement that we all have different truths, but ultimately they all lead to the same God. Now, why would a pastor say that? I think a pastor would say that for one of two reasons. Either he's really deceived, or two, he fears man and what man will think of him rather than he fears what God will think of him. Because at the end of the day, i got to be honest, I get up here to preach and I want to please you. I, I do. I, I want... I want you to be happy with the things that I say. I don't want you to leave saying, man, that guy's a nut. He's crazy. He's mean. He's angry. I don't, want, I don't want any of those things to happen. But at the same time, I understand that ultimately I'm not going to be judged by you. I'm going to be judged by God. And what I say, I have to say it as I believe this is the truth. Whether it makes you angry, whether you reject it, whether you don't like me does not matter because I have to speak the truth of God's word. Another guy actually got a little bit closer. He says, no, I believe Jesus is the way to God. But he said, I believe there's many paths to Jesus. Well, no, the truth is, is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the one true God except through Jesus Christ. But not only that, there's only one way to Jesus. And that is to repent and believe the gospel. That means that the only way to Jesus is to turn from sin and to actually believe that Jesus Christ died for that sin for you on the cross and that He was raised again from the dead for your justification and He grants you eternal life if you will turn from sin and your worldly passions and follow Him. And there's forgiveness there. There's one way to Jesus. There's one way to God. And it's really simple. It's really cut and dry. But man, we live in a world that is ran by demonic principalities and powers and their trade is lies. And they use universities and educational systems to indoctrinate our children and you. And now they use media outlets to indoctrinate you to believe things that are contrary to God's Word. This is why we teach that spiritual warfare is actually pulling down imaginations and lofty opinions that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And so we're in the middle of a spiritual warfare, and it's a warfare in our minds. What do we believe? What do we think? What is true? What is sin? Is there sin? All of these things entail wisdom. You know, Job 28, 28, it says that, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to run away from evil is understanding. Another place it says the fear of the Lord is basically the opposite of hardening one's heart. So if you have fear of the Lord, what you simply have is a reverence for God and a worship for God and an awe of God that ultimately I don't fear man and I'm not going to harden my heart to the Lord to say, I know what's right, God, and I'm going to choose for myself. No, you have a sensitive heart that says, Lord, what you say goes. I may resist it at first, but ultimately my heart is tender toward you. 
I want to hear what you have to say, even if it challenges me. Even if I have a hard time believing it, my heart is tender before you, Lord, because I realize but, that I'm but dust and I have no wisdom without you, God, and I need to hear your voice. So wisdom, it doesn't come from study or experience alone, although study is good, right? I encourage people to go to college, get you about 12 degrees if you can. I mean, do, do, all that is good. We don't downplay education. Education can be very helpful, but it can also be destructive if it's the wrong kind of education. But when God gives us wisdom, here's three things that I believe that He gives us. When we ask God for wisdom, here's three things that I believe that He gives us. One, He gives us the ability to obtain general knowledge of the facts about truth and reality. So when you ask God for wisdom, one thing that He's going to do, I'm going to tell you this right now, when you ask God for wisdom, one thing He will do is He will give you a hunger for Scripture. He'll give you a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. And He gives you an ability to obtain knowledge about facts of reality. What Satan gives you is deceptive ideas about reality. And he tries to warp that. Secondly, he gives us situational insight to properly discern the dynamics of the moment at hand. So here's the thing. I can have knowledge, but i got to understand the situation at hand. When to speak, when not to speak, how, what, where, where this person's at in life. So wisdom operates in the sense that i got to know what's actually happening right now. So I can't just spit out knowledge. i got to know where people are at, where they stand, what they believe, and what's ultimately going to lead toward good. But then thirdly, if I have knowledge and I have an understanding of, of, of the situation that I'm in, then thirdly, I've got to have the necessary resolve to act according to that knowledge and insight. Because here's the thing. Most people today... Simply put, this is going to be real hard at first, but most simply put, most people today are cowards. They're afraid to say what needs to be said because they're afraid of offending someone. And wisdom entails that when it comes down to it, there's a time when in love you must speak truth. Amen. And without, so, so, so wisdom actually, it gives us the ability to obtain knowledge. It gives us situational insight to know how to use that knowledge, but then it gives us the boldness to use it at the right time and not cower and hide and run. And so, number one, we need wisdom to have, we need wisdom from God to have true success in life because the world offers you all kinds of opportunities for success. If you're graduating high school, you're moving to college, man, it's an exciting time. You got your whole life in front of you. And some people, you already got it planned out. If you're like me, whenever I went to college, had no idea. Like, I just sort of figured, you know what, I'm going to do what my dad did. I'll become a lawyer. And then the Holy Ghost hit me, you know, boom, midway through and said, no, we're going to do away with that plan. And I pray the Holy Ghost hits y'all about midway through uh, college and does the same thing with your all's plans. Because it's a good thing, except, now here's the thing. God may have already given you good plans because there's all sorts of occupations that God needs people in to use you in, whatever that may be. But see, there's true success and the end goal of life. God may bless you with a wonderful career to obtain all kinds of money and nice things and all of that. But ultimately, that will not bring you satisfaction and happiness. There's something that comes from God and a wisdom that comes from God that if He grants you those things, you will use them for His glory. And so he may very well give you those. He may have already put those plans in your heart if you're a young pr praying person. And maybe if you're older in here, the, the, the shoe still fits. But you need wisdom from God to have success in life. And he will give good success. Because here's the thing. You can have worldly wisdom and you can gain worldly success, but you can be a private and a moral failure. 
And we see this every day, man. We see this every day with celebrities that we think seemingly have it all made. They've got more money than anybody in the world. But privately, they are a moral failure. They are a private failure. And they're struggling deep down because they don't have wisdom that comes from God. Now notice this, Proverbs 3, 13. It says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies. Now, if I came in here and I had a bunch of gold and a bunch of rubies and a bunch of diamonds and you could go out here and sell it for millions of dollars and I said, now the other thing I could give you is wisdom. Which one are you going to pick? And what are y'all going to pick the golden ruby? I bet you a million dollars. See, this is a hard thing for us to accept. This is a hard reality for us to accept. We, we want the stuff, not the life that actually gets the stuff and adds no sorrow to it. It's a big difference. And he says, verse 15, she's more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand, riches and honor. You're like, all right, now we're talking. I mean, length of days, riches and honor. <laughs> now this is good stuff, Clay. We, we, now maybe I do want a little bit of wisdom. But see, here's what he's saying. He's saying when you embrace wisdom for wisdom's sake, because most people are asking for all kinds of things. They're asking for a promotion. They're asking for a better job. They're asking for more money. They're asking for a connection with somebody that's got political power. They're asking for all of these things. And what he's saying is what you're really asking for is abundant life. But all of these things in and of themselves cannot give you abundant life. But if you embrace wisdom for wisdom's sake, wisdom that is found in knowing Christ Jesus, then guess what? When you embrace her, she wraps her right and her left arm around you. And guess what are in her right and left arms? Length of days and riches and honor. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. But if you seek those other things, ultimately all of those things will be taken away from you. And so it's this challenge of what do, we, what do we pursue? What do we seek after? What's our goal in life? What do we want? And see, Christ is the incarnation and living manifestation of wisdom. And he kind of flipped it on its head from an Old Testament view because that man didn't have no place to lay his head. He didn't have physical riches. He had spiritual riches. He knew that ultimately he was not storing up wealth in this life. He was storing up wealth in the next. He taught us the same thing. And he's saying, look, it's good to have these things, but ultimately they cannot be our goal in life. Interestingly, you know who wrote the Proverbs? His, his name was Solomon. I want to get into two guys this morning. Solomon and Daniel, and then we'll move out. But Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, the majority of the book of Proverbs. He also wrote... Uh, two other books, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. And it's very interesting because Ecclesiastes, he makes this statement. Solomon became the wealthiest man to ever live. Solomon was worth, according, if you, if you look it up and study it, what he had, if you translate it today, he is worth $2.1 trillion. $2.1 trillion. He amassed an amazing amount of wealth and gold and all of these things. He had... As you know, 700 wives, 300 concubines, a little bit sketchy. That wasn't God's idea, y'all. Amen. He did some messed up things, but he had wisdom. He obtained wealth. He had all of these amazing things built in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, I sought out to see what was worthwhile under the sun. And that's language for, hey, let's cut God out of this. Leave the heavens out of this. 
Let's figure out what's worthwhile if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if it's just us right here, right now. You know what he came to find out? He said, it's all meaningless. It's vanity. It's all a chasing after the wind. A man dies, he goes to the ground, he leaves nothing behind, he takes nothing with him. He said, it's all vanity, a chasing after the wind, pursuing money, women, sex, fame, all of these things. He says, it's all vanity, a chasing after the wind. And then he writes the Song of Solomon. He's got a different note because it's a picture of a man and his wife loving one another. But it's really a picture of Christ and the church. And he says, your love is better than life itself. What he comes to realize is that all of these worldly things that we pursue ultimately leave us more empty than we were before. They are a chasing after the wind, something that can never be grasped. But what he found out is that true intimacy and a relationship with God was what filled us up and gave us strength and gave us enjoyment and gave us peace. He said that is what true wisdom is. Forget what's under the sun. Look at a relationship with Jesus Christ and everything else that is added unto you beyond that relationship with Jesus Christ is just cherry on top. Amen. And so many ask for these things, but let me tell you something. God loves it when we ask for wisdom. Number two, God loves it when we ask Him for wisdom. If you're going to wake up in the morning and ask Him for something, ask Him for wisdom and ask Him for the Holy Spirit because in Scripture He's told us to ask Him for both of those things. Very simple prayers each morning. Lord, fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Give me wisdom for the day. If you do nothing else, ask Him for those two things. He says He gives it generously to all who ask. But notice in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3-5, through 5, it says Solomon loved the Lord. He was like you all. He loved the Lord. But notice this. He was walking in the statutes of the Father, his David. Watch. Except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Here's what, here's what he's saying. He's saying that, you know, it's possible to love the Lord, but still have a little bit of division in your heart. It's possible to love the Lord, but still be burning incense or worshiping other idols or, or slowly, subtly allowing things to creep in and put themselves before God in your life. And he says, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? So he's at Gibeon, and Gibeon represents, this is a place where they actually did some false worship. They, they, they worshiped other gods at Gibeon, and Gibeon is a place where it's like you, you love the Lord, you worship a little bit, you go to church on Sunday, but deep down at the end of the day, it's just an outward form. It's not real. You don't have a real relationship with God yet. See, when I was young, I went to church a lot, y'all. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody, everybody in southeastern Kentucky, y'all been to church. Everybody's been to church. But you can go to church, have an outward form, but deny the power of God in your life. That's where Solomon was at. He was at a place where he loved the Lord. He kind of wanted to worship God, but he was sort of divided. And he was at Gibeon in a place where he should not be. He had an outward form of godliness, but no real relationship with God. And so many of us, we find ourselves in that exact position. I'm telling you something. When you are in that position, you have an open door for a lot of deception to come into your heart. And so he offers a sacrifice. Why? Because he's at that same place I was at when I was 20 years old. He's in this place of like, I want the Lord, but I'm struggling with all these things in my heart. And I don't know which. And he says, all right, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and see if I can get him to respond to me. Lord shows up, responds to him because he called on him. And the Lord says, hey, here's a blank check. Ask, what do you want me to give you? And I think in one way the Lord was sort of testing him. Amen. But he says this in verse 7, Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. He's 20 years old. 
How many of you 20-year-olds, you call yourself a little child still? You probably don't. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart. Literally, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's a hearing heart. It's very interesting. You ever ask the Lord to give you a hearing heart? I'm like, Lord, my heart just beats, and a lot of times it's irregular. I don't know how in the world it's going to hear. He's talking about his spirit. He's talking about his innermost being. Give me an ability to hear beyond my mind, beyond my ability to reason or logic or make sense of the world around me. Give me a heart that's tender to your spirit and your impression. He says, give me a hearing heart. Why? So that I may discern between good and evil. I remember reading that one time when I was younger and thinking, but it's so easy to discern between good and evil. And we live in a world where legitimately people are now calling good evil and evil good. And it's not easy anymore for people. And so he's praying a very valid prayer because it's becoming so difficult for people to discern what is legitimately good and what is legitimately evil. And he says, give me a hearing heart so that I can discern between those two. I need to hear your impressions, Lord. I need to hear your spirit. I need to, I need to know what you're saying to my heart. Because here's the thing. I remember hearing preachers say, son, son, you need to repent of this sin and you need to do that and you need to do this. And all it did was make me angry. But when I sought the Lord for myself and the Lord spoke to my heart, then it meant something. And God can use preachers, can He? But there's something else when the voice of the Lord, the Spirit of God, hits your heart because you read it in the Scripture for yourself. And you've got a hearing heart and all of a sudden God's speaking to you and challenging you personally because you've entered into a relationship with Him. In 2 Chronicles 1.10, it's a different variation of it, but the same conversation. And He says this, He says, Now give me wisdom. That's a very particular word. Like the definition we gave before, that wisdom is the ability to obtain factual knowledge about reality. It's the ability to have situational insight to know what to do, and, it's a, and it has the guts to do it. Amen. That's that kind of wisdom. But he asked not just for wisdom, but knowledge. This word knowledge is a very specific word. It's only six times in Scripture. Three of the times relates to Solomon in this situation. Three of the other times is, is, is Daniel and, and the three Hebrew children receiving that knowledge from God. But it's a very specific word because it's not the same as other knowledge words. It literally means it's madah. It means inner consciousness. It's like a built-in monitor. Let me ask you something. You ever, you ever just been in a situation and all of a sudden somewhere deep down here in your gut it says, hey, you need to get out of here. Anybody ever been in that situation? You ever been around a person? And all of a sudden, deep down in your gut, you're like, this dude ain't no good. I need to get out of here. And I can't tell you the number of times as a child I felt that, I sensed that, and I rejected it, and I numbed it until it went away. And I remember calling out to God and saying, God, give me wisdom once again. Give me knowledge. Give me understanding. Give me truth. And all of a sudden, that sense came back. And then it got heightened. And then there was a greater perception. See, when he's talking about this knowledge, he's ta- he's, this knowledge, he's talking about a built-in and inner knowing that doesn't just come from reading books. It comes from you having a relationship with the God who knows all things. And in certain situations, guess what? You know what God knows. You have discernment. You have the ability to say, that's wrong. That's right. Well, how? Can you explain it to me? Well, no, I don't really know how to explain it. I just know. I have knowledge. 
This is beyond how many books you've read or how smart or intelligent you are. This is a knowledge that comes from God where you know the way to take and you can't explain why you know it. All you know is that it's there. Back in the old churches, whenever they used to testify, they say, I know that I know that I know. You know what they're talking about? They're talking about this word. They can't explain what happened to them. I can't explain to you what happened to me the day that Jesus met me in my bedroom and set me free from bondage that I couldn't shake on my own. I can't explain it to you. I don't know metaphysically the science behind what happened and how there was a Holy Spirit that impacted my life and delivered me from the demonic. I don't know how to put that on paper and verify it for you, but I know that I know that I know that the Holy Spirit showed up and set me free. And when He's praying for this wisdom and when He's praying for this knowledge, knowledge he's praying for that he's praying for something that goes beyond what this world can teach you've got to have that you've got to want that that's what I want that's what Solomon when he was writing this in the book of Proverbs he was stirring that kind of desire in your heart he was wanting you to want it that bad he's saying ask ask for it because this is something that's so far beyond what you can understand and see more practically it's not just about knowing but three number three we need discernment to distinguish between truth and error in a world that is filled with deception. We need discernment to distinguish between truth and error in a world that is filled with deception. And it's getting worse, increasingly worse. You know, Solomon asked for a hearing heart and an inner consciousness to discern good and evil. And here's the thing, here's the thing about Solomon. He was ultimately, in the end, if you read the story, it's a sad story. Because he started out in a good spot. He established the temple. His father David had won all kinds of victories and all kinds of war, but he could never build the temple in Israel. Solomon built the temple in Israel. He had no adversaries, no enemies. Israel was established as a sovereign nation, one of the most powerful nations, if not the most powerful in the world at the time. Solomon was the wealthiest man that there was. When he, when he built the temple... They came in and they praised God. And when they worshipped God, the glory of the Lord and the presence of the Lord so filled the temple that they couldn't even stand up any longer. He knows God's presence. He's been in the house of God. He built the house of God. And he's in that place, but see, there was something still in his heart. And when you read the story, you find out that he was deceived ultimately by both riches and his own sexual lust. Amen. This is how the story plays out. And the queen of Sheba came to him at one time and she was astonished at the wisdom of Solomon and she gave him all kinds of gold and and it talks about how he amassed all this gold. You know, in Deuteronomy 17, just a quick side note, there is a law of kings and it says that when you decide to get kings, Israel, because they didn't have them just yet, when you decide to get kings, because I know you will, because I'm God and I know all things, When you do that, make sure that your kings do not amass too much gold or silver and make sure that they don't have many wives, specifically. What does this dude do? He does exactly that. He amasses more gold. He breaks the law of kings. He amasses gold. Matter of fact, you know, it's so interesting to me because people talk about the mark of the beast, 666, etc. The first mention of 666 in the Bible actually refers to Solomon because it says in one year he brought in 666 talents of gold every year. 
And what it is, 666, in a sense, it's a spiritual number, but it's also the number of a man. But it's this switch from where you move from the true worship of God to you move to the worship of the world system. And you rely on the world system to supply all of your needs. And this is why the mark of the beast ultimately entails that you will not buy, sell, or trade unless you have the mark of the beast. And that mark was already on Solomon. Why? Not because he took the mark on his hand or his forehead, but because it was in his heart. It was in his heart. And he received this. And he's wealthy as all get out. He gets 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it says, here's the thing. Solomon loved the Lord, but all of a sudden in 1 Kings 11, it says, but guess what else? He also loved many foreign women. Amen. I mean, I, no, I better not even get into this. 700 wives? As if you didn't have enough already, you're going to add 300 concubines on it. I bet he got nagged on a lot. That's why, that's why in Proverbs, that's why in Proverbs he said it's better to dwell on the rooftop than when with a nagging wife. Amen. I'm thinking he'd multiplied it by 700. My Lord. But here's the thing that God actually warned him about with this. He said, if your heart turns away to these other foreign women and you marry foreign women, he says, they will bring in with them their gods and their philosophies. It's not just that you're committing sexual sin. You're bringing in other gods and other philosophies. And guess what? Here's what's so crazy is that Solomon brings them in and his heart turns, it says, to these other gods. And he starts to build altars to Chemosh, the god of plague and famine and death. I mean, who's going to turn from the one true God to turn to a god of plague and death? Then he builds other altars to other gods like Ashtoreth. He builds a, an altar to worship at to the god of Molech. Molech is a god that demands child sacrifice. In our own nation and in throughout our world, this God is still at work. There's still a God. There's still a spirit and a principality in our world that demands child sacrifice. And we offer that to them freely. 73 million babies a year are aborted. And I know that's a very sensitive subject, but here's the thing that we have to understand as Christians. It's not that we get into a political debate on these issues, but ultimately when we're talking about following Christ, we're talking about a life-giving God. And it's a very sensitive subject because at this point, do you understand that a woman who is 45 years old, you've got a one in four chance of having had an abortion. That means that there's tons of people who have had this. And here's what I would say to them is, is, look, most of those people that have done that, I've counseled with people who have had an abortion and they are in great pain. And, when, and that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Maybe they're still fighting for their rights or, or, or whatever. They want to justify what they've done. or go. And here's the thing. Jesus is saying, look, what you've done is ultimately not my design. It's not what I wanted. I designed life this way, that a man would leave his, his father and mother, would cleave unto his wife, that they would have sex in the holy covenant of marriage, and that would bring life. And they would raise up godly children that would change the world. And now we live in a world that has so married itself to death that we actually think it's a bad thing to bring children into the world. God's design is that you would actually raise godly children to transform the world. So what am I saying? I would never say a negative word to anybody that has an abortion except this. The same way that God called me out of my sin is the same way that God is calling you out of your sin. And He will set you free from shame. He will set you free from guilt. He will forgive you of sin. And He will restore you. And He will teach you the truth. And He will bring you into a place where you can honor Him in a new and a fresh way. But see, we as Christians, we just can't simply, we, we can't be mean to people. But on the other hand, we cannot just simply yield 
to things that are causing destruction in people's lives. And I know that's a hard topic and I don't have time to cover it all. But see, deception is slow and subtle. It's one thought, one doctrine, one step at a time until you end up in a different place than you began. It's very slow. Anybody that's ever been deceived, the thing about it is they don't realize it. That's why it's called deception. In 1 John 2, 26 and 27, it says, These things I have written you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in Him. I understand that sometimes Christians, we debate different things and, and, and there's peripheral issues that we may disagree with mentally, but at the end of the day, when it comes to demonic deception, God says there is an anointing on the inside of you where you know that is error. That is not what God would have. And if you abide in Christ, that anointing will abide in you and you will know this is not the direction that I should go. And you need that so badly in your life because there's going to be so many deceptions that are thrown your way and the enemy's tactic is to dull your sensitivity to the Spirit of God within and his aim is to subtly draw you in. His aim is to subtly draw Christians back with demonic deceptions and lies into a tolerance for sin so that the spirit of the age consumes them and they are dulled. And this is what's happening. The spirit of the age is consuming Christians I'm not talking about the world. I'm not even preaching toward the world today. The world is the same message all the time. Jesus loves you. He died for your sin. Repent and receive eternal life. But this morning, I'm I'm preaching to Christians that are being drawn away day by day into false doctrines and teachings that our world is offering that is mixing in with the church. And here's the scary thing. Here's my fear. I told somebody this just the other day. My fear is not that we're entering into a time in America where there are no churches. My fear is that we're entering into a time in America where there are tons of churches and they're filled with people, but those people no longer believe God's Word. Those people have adopted the worldly values of this demonic system. And they're teaching it. You say, well, that's a little bit far-fetched, Clay. I don't know if that's really true. Is that really happening? I mean, our church is really adopting this, these, these lies and these false truths. I, I, I went to a seminary school. You know what seminary schools are designed to do? They're designed to train people to be ministry leaders in the world. Okay? And I went to one. Well, there's one specific school, Duke Divinity School. It's a seminary school. They train ministers. And they had a service a couple of months ago where they invited students to praise the great queer one. I know this is a, this is a little bit scandalous, and I contemplated whether or not I wanted to share it or not, but it burdens my heart even to read this. I'm going to read it. They had, they had, a, they had a, a service, and when they stood up, they did a lot of different things, and they taught many different things. But here's what one student said at Duke Divinity School in this worship service. And I want you to imagine me reading this this morning as if it were truth, even though it's not. But he says, she says, we want to affirm everyone to be who they truly are, to step into the Holy One's fire that burns away all that says we are not good enough and refines us by the Pentecostal fire to be who exactly the great queer one calls us to be. God, you are the strange one, fabulous one, fluid and ever becoming one. 
You are drag queen and trans man and gender fluid, incapable of limiting your vast expressions of beauty embodied in us, your creation. And here's the thing. When I read that, I don't know about you, it doesn't make me angry. It grieves my heart. And it grieves my heart. And this person, I would never say a mean word to this person. Because I sent, people are deceived, folks. And so we don't respond with anger toward people that are deceived. We respond with compassion. But at the same time, my fear is that somehow or another, we're all just going to give way to these types of beliefs and say, well, we'll let people believe what they believe because every, everybody's truth is their own truth. No, folks, there's one truth. And it's found in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God. And here's the thing. It's going to stand when the world's on fire. And one day the world will be on fire. And whether or not you held to the truth of God's Word is going to determine your eternity. And so when we see people in these types of deceptions, we don't hate them, we're not angry with them, we do not berate them, but we look for opportunities to lovingly have a conversation with them that is centered around the Scripture. Because, and here's the thing, I know people are pushing that out and say, well, we don't even believe in the Word of God anymore. Don't give it to us. And I, guess what? The world is going to continue to go that direction, but somebody, the church, is called to stand in the truth regardless of cultural trends. Regardless of cultural trends. And when you go into college, you are getting hit by a tidal wave. A tidal wave of constant deception. And it's going to try to push you. It's going to try to conform you. They're going to say that if you don't believe it, you're a hateful bigot. That you hate people. That's what they're going to say. And this, this is what's going on in our world today. Now, I want you to notice 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, a verse that is not very popular in our world today. But it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, Paul uses the word unrighteous. It's a specific Greek word. And he uses it to define those whose behaviors are indistinguishable from the believing world. And he basically declares that they're most likely not among saints. If their behavior is different, than, if it's the same and indistinguishable from the unbelieving world, they're most likely not Christians. Right? And he goes on to say, do not be deceived because he knows that most likely there's going to be deception at hand. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the best verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do you realize that I was some of that? I was sexually immoral. I was a drunkard. I was a swindler. We were all those things. But here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel doesn't affirm you in those things. The gospel calls you out from those things, forgives you of those things, washes you in the blood of Jesus, and then releases the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you. That means that it cuts the power of that sin off of your life so that you can deny it and say, you know what, I might have that inclination, but by the power of the Spirit, I'm saying no, and I'm moving moving in a different direction. When God gets a hold of your life, He doesn't say, I love you, stay right where you're at. He says, I love you and I'm here to change who you are. I'm here to wash you. I'm here to make you a new creation. I'm here to set you free from that sin, not to affirm you in your sin. The church is no longer the church when it affirms sin. The church is the church because it graciously and lovingly calls people to repent of sin. And we come in here, here's the thing about this, because I can preach this and people say, well, that bigot standing up thinking he's something, I'd like to get in his closet and see what he's hiding. 
I'm not preaching this from the position of me being perfect. I just told you my testimony. I'm, I was sexually immoral. I was a drunkard. I was all of those things. And I still struggle from time to time. I have inclinations sometimes to lust. But God has given me the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to it. And out of that relationship with Him, I'm maintaining that. And I'm saying I'm not yielding. And I'm not giving in. And I'm calling you to this same salvation that Jesus so graciously and lovingly gave me. Man, what a gift that God's given us. And what a world we live in where the deception tries to try to pull that away and make that sound like it's a hateful message. That's not a hateful message. That's the most loving message in the world. Because if you keep going that direction, you're going in the direction of destruction. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the ways of that are the end and they are death. Man, here's where we're at. Recently at Lee University, and this is a Christian university. This is actually where I went. My seminary school was associated with Lee University. Matter of fact, Logan Bray went to this university. And sort of in response to the current cultural moment, they made this statement. I'm going to read a big section here, but I think it's important. They made this statement. God's design is not accidental. Males and females are specific. And complement each other physically, emotionally, and spiritually in order to fulfill God's commission for them. Be fruitful and multiply. Males and females bear God's image, equal in personhood. Therefore, despite current cultural suggestions that gender is a mental or cultural construct that may be removed from bodily or biological considerations, we believe gender is determined by one's body. One's biological sex should be understood as binary, male or female, as God created them. Therefore, humans do not have an ability or observed right to choose a gender. It is chosen for them in their biological makeup. Marriage is more than a contractual agreement that can be entered into by persons of either gender. It is a covenant between a male and a female that is witnessed by God. The Scriptures mention the covenant love between a husband and wife several times. Therefore, we conclude that unions blessed by God are solely those between one man and one woman and do not include those of same sex because such unions, even if they may be legal, are not the unions as described by God. We commit to engaging in discussion of topics such as sexuality, same-sex sexual behavior, same-sex attraction, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and gender identity with grace and humility, always directing each other toward God's truth in this fallen world. We commit to hold students accountable for disregarding the sexual limits of Scripture, yet we will also work with them to support repentance as well as restoration in their relationship with Christ and others. It's a positive, biblical standard, holding people accountable, calling them lovingly and graciously to repentance. Do you realize that this has been the viewpoint of the church and the interpretation of Scripture for 2,000 years? It's not some, like what, how is it that all of a sudden we're just coming up with something new and we got a new interpretation of Scripture? Listen, Christianity is not something that you get to make up. Following Jesus is not something that you get to make up. It was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and its chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ Himself. It's something that has been given to us, it's been passed down to us. And I understand this is, this is challenging because this, here's the thing it's tough because in our world, 
We, we're, it, it teaches that kindness and compassion is either ne- never saying anything or affirming it. But see, what we have to believe is that they're as difficult as it is. You know, I wanted to reject everything that was coming at my personal sin. I wanted to reject it. That's hateful. Don't tell me that. I want to live my own life. I want to live my own truth. But God is saying, no, there is one truth, and you must align yourself with it. And if you do, that leads you to true freedom. You think freedom is the other direction, and it's not. It's not. True freedom is the freedom which is found in Christ. But here's the thing. They made that statement, put it online, and they have been bashed. Students who went to seminary school who are currently in ministry, in whatever way that they say it, one of them made a statement, Lee University is apostate. They should have their accreditation removed for making that statement. And apostate means that you were once believers and you're now moving in the opposite direction. And I know this is heavy, but it's a scary time when people who name the name of Christ claim that biblical values are apostate. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I know this is heavy. Like, i got to be honest with you. When I'm preparing this sermon, I didn't think, man, this is going to be fun this morning. I get that it's heavy. But I have sensed in my spirit. I took, I, we were going to preach through the book of James. I sensed in my spirit that, that for whatever reason, I must release this particular word to this particular people in this particular hour. And so here's what I'm going to finish with. is in the book of Daniel because many of us were entering into this cultural moment And I know this has been long, but I need to finish. In Daniel 1, 5 through 7, if you look at it, Daniel is brought into Babylon as Babylon destroys Jerusalem and Israel and takes over. And Babylon is representative of a godless culture specifically. And when he moves in, here's what they say. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were, to be, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now notice, they bring them in. These are godly young men, but they bring them in and their specific design is to give them new literature, to change their imagination, to give them new philosophy, to change their logic and the way they think, and to give them a new language to change their culture completely. In other words, they are to be reprogrammed very intentionally. I heard somebody say this recently that a person was sending their kid to a private Christian school and another, other, another friend who claims to be a Christian said, you know what, I think it's a terrible idea. They're going to try to indoctrinate your kid with the Bible. He said, it would be better. I want my kids to be able to have the choice. Can I tell you that your kids ain't going to have a choice? Wherever they're at is what they're going to be indoctrinated with. Kids are designed to be taught They're designed to be indoctrinated. It's not a matter of whether or not they're going to be indoctrinated. It's what they're going to be taught with. And you have to make a decision early on in your life. Are you going to let your kid be caught up in the sway of the world and programmed by the world and programmed by Netflix and programmed by Disney? Or are you going to let your kids be programmed with the Word of God and by the Spirit of the Holy One? And see, we have to make that decision early on in life because when culture shifts, will culture shift you? And that's the big point. Here's my last point. We must have a devotion to God that will not buckle under cultural pressure. 
Because when they're sitting there, they bring Daniel in and notice this. They give Daniel. Daniel's name is literally a, a, a label by God. And Daniel's name is God is my judge. And they change his name to Belshazzar, which is, Oh lady, protect the king. They're trying to change his foundation in God and rename him. And they mock him and call him Oh lady because they have castrated him. Interesting, isn't it? They bring Hananiah in, and Hananiah's name is Yahweh is gracious. It speaks of God's character, God's nature. And they change Hananiah's name to Shadrach, which means I'm very fearful of God or the command of Aku. It's worship to another God. And the focus goes from God is good, God is gracious. See, what people don't realize is the message that I'm preaching this morning is a message of grace. We all sinned against God. And we have the opportunity to repent and be forgiven and be saved. That's grace. And not only that, that grace empowers us to live different lives. And we're not called to be fearful of this God who puts burdens on us and restricts us. But we have a loving God who sets us free. Mishael comes in. And Mishael's name is who is what God is. It gives God glory. They change Mishael's name to Meshach. I'm despised and of no value who is like Aku. And I hope you realize this morning, listen, I'm I'm speaking to people like, because here's the thing, if you hear this, you've had an abortion, you hear this, maybe you've been homosexual or you have a same-sex attraction, the one thing I'm not here is to make you think that somehow God is angry at you. God loves you. God loves you. You are of infinite worth and value of unsurpassable worth. And here's the thing. Every single one of us, we come in here with different struggles. Somebody that's struggling with same-sex attraction is no different than the man that came in here addicted to pornography this morning. Y'all both got sin before God, and we both got to bring it and say, Lord, we're struggling. We need help. Please forgive us. Please wash us. Please cleanse us and help us move on. And it's not that you won't struggle with it as you move forward, but you will have a devotion to God that will give you the power and the Holy Spirit to continue to live for Him and glorify His name even in the midst of the struggle. Even in the midst of the struggle, who is like God? Who is like God? And we are not despising of no value. We're of great value. And Jesus is with us in His struggle. He sees us in our sin. This is why He calls us and He dies on the cross for us while we're in our sin. Lastly, Azariah comes in. It means Yahweh has helped. They changed Azariah's name to Abednego, a servant of Nebo. And the servant of Nebo is a god of wisdom and writing, a keeper of the tablets of destiny. And this is a focus from God's help to the world's help because a lot of people think that getting a college degree is the, the ultimate key to your destiny. I can promise you it's not. God can use it. It can be helpful. But this world system does not hold the key to your destiny. God does. And He will help you. He will help you no matter where you go, no matter what you have to do. But I want to read this last verse and I'm finished. It says they're in this situation in a godless culture that's trying to reprogram them. There's tons of resistance. They bring them to the king's table and say, you got to eat our food. But it says in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He would not defile himself. See, you have to make, you have to be, you can't go flippantly into this wave of deception and say, you know what? Whatever comes will come. I won't bother nobody. Nobody will bother me. You have to resolve in, in, in yourself and in your heart that it is coming for you. The demonic deception is coming for your mind, it's coming for your heart, it's coming for your family, it's coming for your children. And you have to resolve in your mind not to defile yourself with the values and the cultural pressure of this world. You have to resolve it in your heart. 
And so he, he trains his appetite and he trains his hungers by the power of the Spirit and he kept them under deception and he said, I'm not going to allow this culture to change me. And he told them, he said, test us 10 days. He said, 10 days, we ain't eating what everybody else is eating. We'll eat fruits and vegetables and we'll sit over here. We're not consuming what the world is consuming. And test us after 10 days and see if we're not better. And at the end of 10 days, it says they came in and looked at those boys and they said, man, they look better than all the rest of the boys. And God gave them wisdom and knowledge the same way that He gave Solomon. So much so that the king said, these boys right here are smarter than anybody else in the kingdom. See, when you serve God, you don't get caught up in the way. You don't just another foolish person adopting the world's values. You're a person who is committed to God. And if you remember the story, you remember whenever they said, hey, you, got, you boys got to bow down to the music and worship this God that we've set up. And those boys had resolved it in their heart. And they said, you know what? When you play the music, here's the thing. God will deliver us from the fiery furnace and he's well able. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and do what you say. We're not going to play to the tune of this world. They threw them in the fiery furnace, and guess what? Jesus showed up for them in the fire and set them free. And what I'm saying is if you will resolve it in your heart, people may call you hateful, people may call you a bigot, people may call you stupid or ignorant, but you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and you love those people who say that to you. We don't hate those people. We're not at war with those people. We're at war with demonic principalities that are trying to sway a world in a different direction. You remember, lastly... Three times a day, Daniel would pray. They said, man, I don't like that Daniel praying. I don't like dudes worshiping the one true God and standing for truth when everybody should have their own truth. We've got all kinds of gods to pick from. And he's trying to worship the one true God. They said, issue a decree, king, that nobody prays except to you. Well, you know what Daniel did? He could have easily said, you know what? I'll just close my doors so nobody knows it. I'll do it in private until the decree passes. Now, he went home. He opened his windows the same way he opened them before. He said, you know what? I've been praying publicly about God and talking about God publicly this long. I'm going to continue to talk about God and talk about Jesus publicly. I'm going to open my windows and I'm going to pray to God if it kills me. And he prayed to God and they heard it and they brought him and they said, Daniel, we got to throw you in the lines then, bro. We issued a decree. He said, let it go. Pull the trigger. I'm going to worship God whether it hair lips you or the devil. I'm going after it. They threw him into the lines then and an angel showed up and shut the mouths of the line. And Nebuchadnezzar was so happy because that was the smartest boy in the kingdom that when he showed up, he said, Daniel, I'm so glad you made it. I should have never issued that decree. Daniel lived through three kings and each one of them, because of his steadfast resolve, turned from false gods and worshiped and honored the one true God. When we send kids out into this generation, I want it to be said that there was a church that stood for the truth, even though it, it made people mad, people hated them, people called them bigots, but they raised up kids that loved people and stood on the truth. And because of it, there were people going in the opposite direction. They turned and they worshiped Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to see. And so this morning, I want us to bow our heads. And I want us to just pray. Just what he prayed. Lord, this is, this is a world that is filled with deception. And we recognize that. And Lord, we recognize that even this message makes us uncomfortable because we live in a world that has taught us not to say those things. Don't say those things. Don't confront these issues. But Lord Jesus, I pray that God, I've spoken in a way that honors you and that expresses your love for people because you do love people so much. But God, the truth remains. 
that you call us all to repent of our sin and to believe in what you've done. And every single one of us, we bring our own struggles. We bring our own faults. We bring our own failures every day to you. So this is not a war against any particular group of people, but this is a war for truth so that ultimately people can be saved and set free and know the truth that is only found in you, Jesus. So this morning, if there's somebody here, God, that doesn't know you, I pray that they respond. I pray that, God, they would, they would cry out to you and say, Jesus, save me, set me free, take me down the path that you would have for my life. I pray they would share that with somebody, God. And I pray you would move in their hearts and that you would bring freedom into people's hearts, God, that are bound up and chained up to these sins that they think they cannot get free from. But Lord God, you've got the power to set them free. So Lord, I pray that you do that in their lives. I pray that there would be open doors of conversation, Lord Jesus, for the truth of your gospel to be ministered to a broken people in a broken world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to speak the truth in love and walk in your wisdom and walk in the knowledge that only comes from, from you. God, you love us so much. And I pray that at the end of all of this message, as heavy as it is, God, that ultimately, God, it would point us back to your love and your goodness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.